Good morning. This morning we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, this morning as we begin uh, this Advent season uh, looking at uh, the prophecy about Jesus Christ. Uh, before we begin, let's, uh, let's start with a, a word of prayer. Father, we do come with joy in our hearts because you have done it. You've made a way. And through your son, Jesus Christ, you've allowed us to approach your throne this morning and worship and honor to your name. And right now we humbly ask that you will open our hearts and our minds to your word, that you will guide and, and lead our conversation this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now maybe some of y'all think it might be a little bit odd to look at the book of Jeremiah as we approach Christmas, but I think what we'll find this morning is hope. Hope in the time of despair. And the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, the prophet, had reason to be in a place of desperation, to be depressed. God called Jeremiah, and we're told in the first chapter of that book that God physically reached out, and God physically touched Jeremiah's mouth. Let's read that passage in Jeremiah 1, 9 through 10. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And so Jeremiah went to the nation of Judah in the city of Jerusalem and prophesied that they would lose their homes, that they would lose their city, and the great fortified city of Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. He even predicted the fall of the Babylonian Empire. But despite God's message to the people of Jerusalem, they refused to repent and the king threw Jeremiah in prison. So Jeremiah had reason to be in desperation. He had reason to be depressed. Now today's passage is about that build and plant section that seems to not fit in Jeremiah 1. I've appointed you to tear down, to destroy, to uproot, and all these, these ugly pictures of of destruction, and then build and plant. What does God mean by that? You see, uprooting the Israelites and destroying their city was not God's ultimate plan for his people. God promised something much more encouraging as he plants something new. Let's look at just a section of this prophecy in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. 
In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from the David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called or he will be called. The Lord, our righteous. Now we need to start first in verse 14. Because Jeremiah starts with what he calls a gracious promise. And it was, it was a promise filled with grace. And if we want to put ourselves in the shoes of Jeremiah's recipients of prophecy in his congregation, we would probably ask one major question as Jeremiah preached about destruction and death. What about the gracious promise. And that gracious promise is found in 2 Samuel 7, 16. When God promises the house of David that your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. Now that is a gracious promise. David didn't do anything to deserve that promise, right? But God called him and made this promise his, his kingdom will last forever. And then you watch as David's kingdom falls. How is David's kingdom going to endure forever if the current king and his family is killed off and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed? How is that even promise fulfilled? It doesn't make any sense. I read this week that there are over 8,800 promises that you can extract from the Old Testament. 8,800 promises. That's a lot of promises, folks. 8,800. Maybe we can allow God to slip up on this one. Maybe this can be one of God's, whoops, I made 8,800, I can miss one? It's like when you are yelling at your kids and you tell them if you don't behave, we're not, going to, we're not going to Dollywood or something like that. If you don't behave, we're not going to the zoo. But they don't behave and you still go to the zoo, right? Just like a little, whoops. You admit the promise when you said it, but their behavior's awful. And you still do it anyway. I, I don't know. How does this work? Israel was acting up. They were misbehaving, but God wasn't dealing with them by breaking a promise. I think when God gave David this promise in 2 Samuel, I think God was thinking about Jesus Christ when he made that promise. And think about it. The Gospels writers agreed. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, whose son? The son of David, the son of Abraham, the sons of promise, you could say. Promises fulfilled. Matthew starts with the promises made to Abraham, and he was, he was sure to include the promise that was made to David. And Jeremiah speaks for God when God tells Israel, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. 
Sprout means the same thing that you and I would understand if we were thinking about a family tree. That word sprout, that word branch, it means lineage. Now, why did God then have to call this thing a sprout? You know, when we uh, look, uh, you can look at this nativity if you'd like. You'll notice that uh, baby Jesus is blonde hair. He's also about two years old in this picture, which doesn't make any historical reference at all. Blonde hair, blue eyes, little white baby Jesus up here. Uh, But if you look at this picture, we see fulfillment of promise in the great King Jesus, the one we worship, right? The one we sing about. Sprout had to mean more than just a baby, right? And this is why the situation in Jeremiah's time is so important to understand. God was obviously cutting down a tree, right? When he allows Babylon to come in to destroy Jerusalem, when they carry off the king, when they carry off their noblemen, when they carry off the people, The sprout should be where Israel finds hope. What happens when you cut down a tree, but you leave the stump? A sprout grows. The roots cannot grow without leaves, and so all the food is stored right there in the roots, and it uses every bit of energy it can to make that sprout appear so it can produce leaves so the roots can Testing, there we go. So the roots can live, so the roots can survive. The tree may be cut down, but that does not mean the end. And although Israel felt like this was the end, the truth was that God had so much in store for them. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, 11, many of you know this verse. He prophesies, I know the plans I have for you. Now we personalize this, right? We look at this verse and we say, God has a plan for me. And I don't have a problem with us personalizing this verse, but think of it within its context. These are a people whose city was destroyed. And God says, I have a plan for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God wants life, not death. And even when that tree is cut down, life is not taken from it. The Department of Social Services in Greenville, South Carolina, sent out a letter back in 1992 about a deceased individual. It said, your food stamps have been stopped because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you and you may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. Death may be the end for our individual lives and maybe the lives of the people that day, but death was not the end for God's people of a promise. God preserved his promise through the righteous sprout that we know as Jesus Christ. Now there's one more spot in this passage that I really want to draw attention to I think it's really interesting. 
In verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety and the name of the city will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now we got to tap into a little bit of Israel history to understand. Zedekiah was the king of Israel during the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The Hebrew meaning for Zedekiah is the Lord is righteous. Jesus then became a new king with the same name who ushers in a completely new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice. In fact, do you remember Jesus' words to Pilate when he was charged with being uh, named the king of the Jews? Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom, he says, is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus admits that he is king. He is Zedekiah, the king of righteousness. All right, so let's bring it all together this morning. In the midst of cutting down the tree known as the nation of Israel, God gives the Israelites hope that a sprout would save the line of David, fulfill the promise that God made to the nation. And so we gather together to celebrate the birth of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of promise of God, ushering in a new kingdom. What does all that mean for us today? If you follow along in your notes, my introduction is done. Here comes my three-point sermon. Sit tight, folks. Chili will come later. It means hope in the midst of heartache. Let's do some comparisons here. Israel watched as their nation was torn apart, as they were uprooted and taken into captivity. And God promised that that would not last forever, that he had better plans for them. And now we look at the birth of Jesus as God's fulfilled the promise. Therefore, no matter what you're going through now, know that God has something better in store for you. And based on this passage this morning, we can trust God. Remember, Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from your eye. There'll be no more death, there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain, for the old order of things have passed away. The birth of Jesus Christ can give us confidence that there is a promise that we can count on. And so it gives us hope in the midst of despair. Secondly, it means that our lives, therefore, must look different. The destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity was due to the fact that the Israelites refused to repent and submit their lives to God. That is just the basis of Jeremiah's prophecy. The reason these bad things are happening to you, Israel, is because you refuse to submit to God. So apply it to ourselves. Our lives got to look different. We have got to submit to God. Last weekend, Jessica and I sat through a Christmas program. It was a secular one. One of the main characters was this little girl who was struggling with believing in Santa Claus. And uh, mom 
uh, in the play was singing this beautiful song about someone who is kind to their neighbor or generous to the poor. And the, the chorus went, well, that's Santa Claus. And I wanted to stand up and scream, no. <laughs> you, you got it all wrong here. That's actually Jesus, right? That's the kind of lives that we're supposed to live. That's, the, that's what it means to submit to God. It means that our lives will look differently. John chapter 13, verse 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The birth of Jesus should not only give us hope in the time of despair, but it should also call us to live a life that is different than this world. And finally here, it means you've been saved. Israel would wait and wait, and they would wait to be physically and politically redeemed. And God never does it. Instead, he spiritually redeems the world. We love John 3.16, but John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I read a story this week about a car thief who had stolen a car in California. And the police were staging an intense search for this vehicle and the driver even the point to placing announcements on local radio stations and, and, uh, and, and, and local radio stations and television stations to try to contact this thief. Because on the front seat of the car was a box of crackers unknown to the thief that was laced with poison. The car th owner had intended to use those crackers for rat bait. And now the police the owner of the car and the whole city is interested in apprehending the thief to save his life, more so than just the car. And I don't know this Christmas season what situation you're living in, but you may feel like you're, you're running away from a God who just wants to get you. You may feel like you're running away from a God who wants to hurt you or stop you from having fun. But in the reality, we've been saved. We've been redeemed. And although Israel wanted so bad to be politically freed, God had something much greater to be spiritually redeemed. Don't run from God. Because God sent his only son that you could have life. This morning, uh, we're going to celebrate around the communion table. There's three tables placed in the back of the auditorium. I'm going to ask you that while we sing this next song that you go and you, you take that cup and you take that bread and meditate on the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his only son. As you hold that cup, we'll have someone come up and give further instructions. But let's stand as we pray, and then we'll sing.